Thank you, Averill family. As we obviously mentioned, uh, we are in the midst of Advent, and uh, this morning will be our second discussion. Uh, the, the, the series title is Emmanuel, God's Plan for a Weary World. I think we can agree we are in a weary world. I think we're tired, and many of us are wondering many things about what's happening and what we're supposed to do and if we'll survive it. And so we come to the book of Hebrews this week, and this is a sermon, really, preached to a weary church, a church that thought Jesus' promise and coming would be far sooner, and as they see the time passing, wonder if it's true. And so the sermon is aimed at explaining the truth. The primary meaning of Hebrews or behind the theme behind Hebrews is that Jesus is the better version of what you long for. In the Old Testament, he is the better prophet. He's the better priest, the better temple. All of these things point to him, and we're going to see that he is uh, what we long for, and that's what our hope is at Advent. Now, in 2, chapter 1, the, the preacher says, we must pay closer attention to what we've heard to understand these truths. So that's what we're going to do. We're going to lean in today and be thankful that this writer, this preacher, doesn't say, stop, just stop your unbelief, but rather he says, let me give you some more understanding. Let's, let's dive in theologically to some hard places to better understand why maybe we've lost sight of our first love, Jesus. And it begins, of course, we just heard in chapter one that he's God, right? We, if just to remind us of the words, he created the world, he is the radiance of the glory of God, he's the exact imprint of his nature, But by chapter 2, the preacher of Hebrews, the writer, is trying to move us into understanding, but he's also fully human. Now, there are three mysteries uh, in the Christian faith that you can't fully grasp. You can't ever explain the Trinity fully. You can try and you can try, but you'll never quite get it. There are three persons and one God, and, and it's very challenging Uh, The third one is, uh, what is the role of man, our responsibility in our salvation, and God's responsibility? That's one of those mysteries that we'll never fully grasp this side of heaven to where you can easily explain it. But the middle one, the one that I think really can be just as equally puzzling, are the natures of Jesus. Jesus is said to be 100% God and 100% man. And so today, knowing that he's 100% God, we're going to try to dive into this need to grasp that he's also fully man. Okay? Ready for that? There's a lot of theology, so pray for me that I don't mess up and get lots of emails. By the way, I do recommend email. Like, I would love to have conversations with if this sparks thoughts and desires to go further. Um, so let's read it together. We're, going to just, we're not going to read all the verses mentioned in the worship guide. We're going to do, start at chapter 2, verse 10. I'll just tell you what we're doing. The slides, I think, are ready to follow what we're doing this morning. So Hebrews chapter 2, verse 10. For it was fitting that he, for whom and by whom all things exist in bringing many sons to glory, should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. For he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one source. That is why he was not ashamed to call them brothers. And then we're going to move ahead to verse 14 of chapter 2. Since, therefore, the children share in the flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same thing, that through death 
he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who, through fear of death, were subject to lifelong slavery. For surely it is not angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. The offspring of Abraham are, is the church, spiritual Israel. Verse 17, therefore he had to be made like his brothers in every respect, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God, to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. And then in chapter 4, it really picks up, uh, most commentaries agree very nicely with that flow of thought. We'll pick up at verse 11. He's just mentioned the Sabbath rest. He says, Let us therefore strive to enter that rest, so that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience. For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and the intentions of the heart. And no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. Since then, we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. This is the word of the Lord. Jesus, we praise you that you, as we read in Philippians, though God and though equal with God did not count that equality to be a thing to be grasped, you came here to rescue your own. And Lord, you did that through your own death. And so, Lord, I pray this morning that as we celebrate and think of your birth, as well as your crucifixion, your resurrection, your um, ruling and reigning, I pray that your Holy Spirit open our eyes to the importance of these great truths, that we may grow closer to you and find peace here on earth. In your name we pray, amen. There's a hard question that comes around from time to time, and it's a question that when you're asked, you're kind of like, hmm, what do I, how do I answer that? And there's a lot of reasons you don't know how to answer the question because it depends on how sincere the person is and their resources. Like, are they, very, are they really focused on your answer? And you know what the question is? What do you want for Christmas? What do you all want for Christmas? Do you get that question? I don't think we get it as much anymore because we buy everything we need on Amazon. And, you know, just, I told one of my kids, it's in the cart, you know, just check it out. So, but when, when they ask you, what do you want for Christmas? What happens for all of us even now is you start with maybe an item, an object, if you've determined something you like, right? And you start there with a thing. If you don't have that yet, you're, you're, I think your heart starts to scan the horizon of needs, right? What would it be? Now, advertisers are experts at doing the next level. What's the thing you really want? Like, what's below the thing, right? Advertisers, if you don't think this is what your heart's doing, then the advertiser, advertising industry would be gone. But it's there and it's vibrant because they present the thing as being able to bring you flourishing. You see, have you ever noticed a dinner table in an ad where anyone's looking at a cell phone? Have you ever seen a car commercial where the driver is not in just full 
smile, laughing. You're like, I've never driven a car like that, ever, you know? And never text, they never show them texting as they're driving down the road and frantically trying to like, you know, that was whirling up a window for you young people. <laughs> Advertisers know we don't want the thing. We want the thing promises. We want peace. We want flourishing. And the truth is we all know you can't have it in those things, but we go after it anyway. And so what we find is our fallenness is bypassing our deeper longing for God and going after things that we think can fulfill us. And what I think we need to understand is we need Jesus to be fully human to recapture a sense of peace. Jesus is later called uh, the true Melchizedek. If you read in Genesis, Melchizedek is a priest of the, of the kingdom of Salem. Peace. Jesus is the ultimate king of peace. You and I want peace and long for it. And I think we need to better understand what it means that he became fully human this morning in order to better understand how we can have true peace. Three things we're going to look at how to do. Name our weaknesses, move toward our suffering, and approaching him with confidence. So, naming our weaknesses. Uh, what, Jesus being fully human is a very hard thing to understand. And I would say the church has done a really bad job at understanding this. And probably, I might even add, even to the present moment, right? Uh, we struggle with this idea that Jesus was fully human, what does it mean to be a human being? And we, we sort of separate out types of parts of our humanity, and we don't allow ourselves as Christians to talk about feelings and emotions and weaknesses very often. It's per, certainly not in company, right? In chapter 2, verse 18, the, the preacher says, For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. We're going to talk about temptation in point two, but I just want you to think about the idea of there's emotions, there's feelings, there's a recognition of need. Just understand that part for now. In chapter 4, 15, he says, For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. So again, weakness there. Now, here's the challenge. Weakness and temptation imply our fallenness, Right? But what we often will do is take our fallenness and attach other elements that are actually beautiful to that, and we lower the understanding of creation. One very famous um, movement that's kind of sprung up throughout history is Gnosticism, this kind of idea of dualism that there, there's a created order over here, and then there's the higher knowledge, not, which come, was where the word Gnostic comes from, up here. And so even before Christ, many, many years before Christ, through Plato and other um, philosophers, this longing for the higher knowledge and this removal of the dirty, nasty, earthly world that we live in. And it makes its way into the early church in the form of a heresy called docetism, who are all the note takers? Come on, docetism. Look it up. Docetism is the heresy that says God, Jesus was fully God, 100% God, but he wasn't fully man. He just took on what looks like mankind, he, a form of a, a appearance of man. Now, why, why would they do that? 
Like, why? let's just pretend it's you. You, you, you know, they know the Bible backwards and forwards. These are church fathers. They're only a few generations removed from the apostles. Why would they come up with this heresy? Because there's something deep inside all of us that can't handle the dirtiness of creation. We feel like it's just all dirty. And that's not true. I used to have a professor that says God doesn't make dirt. God doesn't make junk. Excuse me, he made dirt. God doesn't make junk, and he doesn't junk what he made. And so part of moving toward Jesus being fully human is we need to recapture the fact that God, that Jesus himself became a man and felt feelings like we feel. He cried tears like we cry. He, he hurt his knee when he banged his knee. If COVID was alive then, he would have needed to wear a mask. Do you understand that he lived in a human body? I say that because I think docetism has snuck into our present sense. We don't talk about our emotions. We don't talk about our sadness. We, we have this, the church has unwittingly taught us it's probably not good to grieve. I was talking with a friend the other day, and um, they mentioned the song coming on, It Is Well With My Soul, and, and they began to just sing it. And I love that song. I've talked about that song. We sing that song. It's a beautiful song. It's a song about a man who lost children in the ocean in a, in, a, in, a, in, a, in a vessel crashing in the ocean. And then this, he coming over months later, comes to the, or weeks later, comes to the place, and the captain points out the place, and he sings in the words, it is well with my soul, comes to his mind. I think that's beautiful if he's grieving, if he's grieved. Because I'm afraid that if we're not careful, what we're going to teach is it's not okay to grieve. You, you feel something, you remove the feeling, get it behind you as fast as you can, and say the words, it is well with my soul. And that's not what the Bible teaches. Jesus, who is truly human, he's not fallen, comes to the place where his friend Lazarus has died. He knows he's going to raise Lazarus from the dead in a miracle, and he weeps. Now, if you just took away the resurrection part and just said he came to Lazarus and he knew Lazarus was in heaven and that one day, someday they'd be reunited and he wept, that's still profound. It's Jesus and he's crying. What do you, we, we cry, what do we do? I'm so sorry, I don't mean to cry. Why? Weeping is okay. Tears are fine. Emotions are part of who we are. And Jesus wept knowing in a few moments he would raise Lazarus from the dead. We can weep too. So, this is sort of naming our weaknesses, naming the fact that we live in a world where there's needs and we're separated from our need. And the main weakness that I want to highlight right here before moving on to the point two is that we're separated from God. The, the, the key weakness is we can't see God. That's what the fall created. And so because of that, when we feel needs... Often we bypass that feeling and run to solutions. So here's a definition of sin I'm going to use as we move forward. Sin, then, is our fallen solution to our real need. So often when we sin, I think we get so bogged down in the sin, and it should make us upset. It should make us weep. But we often forget to be curious about what we were trying to deal with with that sin. You see, that, the, the thing that led us to the sin is actually not the problem. Loneliness is not the problem. That's not the sin. 
the, the desire to be known is not the sin. What's the sin is the things we often take, the steps we take to fulfill those needs and longings apart from God. But if we don't pay attention to our need, I think we're going to miss Jesus. And I think so often our Christianity becomes super boring because we don't see Jesus like this. It's the painting on the wall with kind of like blonde hair, which is not even correct in any stretch of the imagination. And he's like, has this placid face. And that's not our Jesus. The Jesus in the Bible became fully man and feels and felt everything you have ever felt that isn't sinful. Not the sin, but the longings behind the sin. I'm going to prove that as we go on. So I know there's a lot of questions and I'm welcoming your emails. So number one is naming our weaknesses Number two, then, is moving toward our suffering. Uh, in our passage, um, in two, ver- chapter 2, the writer of Hebrews, the preacher, says this in verse 14. Since, therefore, the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, And deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. And so right there we hear that Jesus becomes flesh to take on the same form that we have. And he conquers death and destroys the devil. We're going to unpack that as we go. But at the end of that little passage in verse 18. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. And so I just want to unpack the concept of temptation for a second. I think most of us know what temptation is. But do we ever, I think we forget that temptation is the space before you sin. I don't know how that works. It's very hard to grasp. But Jesus did not sin, and yet he was tempted. Now, the Greek word for tempted is testing. So he was tested. And we're going to talk about his testing, but it's important to understand that it's the space before you make the decision to fulfill it with fallen means. So if sin is your fallen method of dealing with your real need, temptation is your recognition of a real need. And you're starting to think about how can I fix the need? And what the writer of Hebrews is saying, you need to know about those needs and understand Jesus had that need. So what is temptation then? It's the temptation to think that there's something other than God that can satisfy you. That's its theological answer. In the Garden of Eden, I went back and just processed this again. We talk about it a lot. You know, everything is perfect, and there's Eve, and presumably Adam next to her, and the serpent's trying to tempt her, right? And he succeeds. But in the temptation phase, he says, did God actually say, you should not eat of any tree in the garden? Now, right there, you're Eve. You haven't sinned. But you just heard a statement from the serpent that all of a sudden just shakes you to the core. Like, what? Is there a chance that God, maybe, you know, it just starts making you think about God differently. In a way, the serpent slandered God. Then he goes on, you will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened. And you will be like God, knowing good and evil. And there's the, there's the hook. If you do the sin, you'll be alive. 
If you do this thing, you'll feel alive. And even though for her, because she had never sinned, all she knew of was the feeling of living, that appealed to her, and that's what temptation does. It reminds you of your death. It reminds you of your separation, right? In our passage, um, in verse 15, I've already read it, I want to come back to it. It's fascinating that he says, here's what Jesus did. He not only destroys the devil, but he delivers all of us, the Christians, who through fear of death were subjected to slavery. And I want you, what is the fear of death? Everything you do to find life apart from God. You look in the mirror one morning and you're like, like, that doesn't look like I used to look, you know? And then you think, I'm gonna, I'm gonna do something about that, right? What happens? I'm, all of us, not just women, men and women, when we see our beauty fading and aging coming on, if you were to track your thinking, it's this. If I don't look as good as I used to, will I be as loved as I used to be? Will people care for me? Will I be alone? If you really track the underlying thinking behind the, t- the things we do and the things we chase, I think it's often tied to that. Uh, the Avett brothers have a song called Call the Smithsonian on their album True Sadness. It's a beautiful song. He says, uh, the singer says, get the young scientist, tell him come quick. I must be the first man to ever see this. There's lines on my face. My teeth aren't white. My eyes do not work and my legs don't move right. Like he's just discovered he's fallen, he's aging right? And he's saying, call the scientist. Call the one that can fix this. Tell him to hurry. I'm the first one. Later, he says, my bedroom's an office and my kitchen's a car. My life is a joke and my bathroom's a bar. That's the thing he went after when he discovered the brokenness. And so what I'm encouraging us to do and what the writer of Hebrews is saying to do is actually when you see that, that death promise, that that fear of death. Don't divert and go after solutions. Go right at it because that's what Jesus did. And what we're going to do is go at it in Christ. In other words, we're not going to fear death. We're going to go toward Jesus, which will be a later point, but we can initially understand it's going to feel like suffering because Jesus suffered. Jesus himself was tempted in the desert. Right After uh, the baptism of the Holy Spirit, he's gone into the desert for 40 days. He hasn't eaten. Um, and then Satan shows up and tempts him. And all of the temptations are basically saying this. You're alone. Right? That's really the heart of it. Like You need food. God's not here. Do you see God? I can help you. You can help you. Let me show you. Like, he just, each temptation is like, how can you find fullness apart from God as yourself? And that's what he withstood. And I want you to know that we too, every one of our temptations is asking you, how can you be alone and alive? That's the, that's the insidiousness of sin. How can you be alone, keep your aloneness, your isolation, and be alive and find life? And you cannot. The temptation to be alive apart from Jesus Jesus also um, becomes something else. I want to read this last verse, of, or verse 17. Jesus had to be made like his brothers in every respect. This is verse 17 of chapter 2. So that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God 
to make propitiation for the sins of the people. In the Old Testament, the high priest was one of the people who was part of a tribe and been trained and part of a team and eventually selected to go in. I'm not sure how all that worked, but this person who represented the people would go into the most holy place and make the sacrifice. And they had to, they had to wash and clean. If you've heard, the amount of cleaning they did is incredibly intensive. And then they would go in, and I've heard stories. That it's not, this isn't all from Scripture, but you can get it from other Jewish writings, that they would have means of like bells or something on their robe in case the, the noise stopped. That would mean the guy died in the presence of God because that's how serious this is. And I've even heard there might even be like some kind of a rope to pull the, per, to pull the priest out because of the serious nature of moving toward the holiness of God, right? I mean, every other religion that believes in a God, the God, God is transcendent, he is other, he is scary. Um, there's even the song, you know, what if God is one of us? Have you, anyone in high school, I think for us, that's at my age. And it's just this like, what if God was one of us, a slob like one of us? Awful, absurd, crazy song. But you hear in that song, like, what if God comes close, right? And here we have, other religions have this transcendent God, and we want, a, this song wants an absurd slob God, but in Jesus you have a God who is both transcendent and perfect and holy, and yet he does come close. He is your high priest. He walks in to the Holy of Holies, but he doesn't have to walk in and wash. He's clean. And he doesn't have to go search for the perfect, unblemished lamb. He becomes the lamb. He becomes a sacrifice. A lot of people with that word propitiation, a lot of scholars want to make it what's called expiation. He just sends the sin away. But that's not what happened. The reason the writer can say he is fully human, Jason and I were talking about this, this is really good. Jesus is born truly human. He's born truly human. He doesn't have any sin. We do. So in that sense, we are different. Does that make sense? That, that's the hardest part about this dilemma. He's in a body that ages, that can die, that can be harmed, but he has no sin. And that's very hard to get your mind around. But if you notice what verse 17 says, therefore he had to be made like his brothers in every respect. He wasn't born like them in every respect in the sense he's born a true human, but he's not born a fallen human. But propitiation is he doesn't sin, but our sin is placed on him. So think about that for a moment. When you sin and the sin is over, the guilt, the shame, the separation from God, all the bad side of sin, he felt the emotion of that, the heaviness of that. So the reason the writer of Hebrews can speak of him understanding your suffering is he went a little farther than you and I did. If you're a Christian and you sin, you will never know the full penalty of that sin. Yes, you'll feel the guilt of it. And yes, there is pollution, and it will defile you. It will wreck your life, this side of heaven. But you'll never actually fully die if you're in Christ. You'll never have God turn his face from you. And Jesus had that. So what the writer of Hebrews is calling us to do when you're struggling in your life, when you're struggling in your temptation, is to not think, you know, Jesus, 
probably could sort of sympathize with me, but he was not fully man. That's what we do. It was because he's God that he could face the cross. It's because he was God that he could go through the horrific scenes at the end of his life. And that's not true theology. What you're doing is you're ruining the richness of who Jesus is. He was a person like you, only he went farther than you and that he took on your sin and actually faced death, like the separation from God. Looking at his uh, situation in the garden where he's praying that God would remove that cup, that's another form of the place where he's tempted, right? And he sweats the drops of blood but not because he's trying to avoid separation from God. This is the craziest, I I can't get my mind around it, so email me if you want, please. But for him, at the height of his temptation, it was because he couldn't even imagine a moment apart from his father. And yet every time we sin, we are willfully walking away from God. We're saying, you're not gonna serve me in this moment. What I need, you can't fulfill. And for Jesus, that brings drops of blood And yet he does drink that cup of God's wrath for us. So what's the point of that? Well, let's lead us to our last thoughts. What do we do with his propitiation? In chapter four, the writer picks up by saying, since then we have this high priest who went into the Holy of Holies, I'm paraphrasing, he's passed into heaven. Let us hold fast, let's cling to him. He says, let's cling to our confession, but the mental images, we're like holding on for dear life to his, the train of his robe as we are being brought with him into heaven. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are and yet without sin. He never sinned, yet because of propitiation, he took on our sin. And then in the last verse of chapter four, let us then, with confidence, drawn near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in our time of need. We sing the song, Come Boldly to the Throne of Grace. Have you, do you remember that song? Come boldly to the throne of grace, boldly, with confidence. That's what we do. We come to this theology and we think in our minds, I wanna believe this so much, but what does that look like? When you are tempted, Pay attention to your emotions. What is it you're after? And understand this, just like the advertisers will tell you, there's something deep in your soul that wants peace. But only the king of Salem can bring it to you, Jesus. So now you go, okay, I want to believe that, and I'm supposed to go boldly to the throne of grace with confidence. What do I do? And I'm going to tell you right now, you're not going to want to do it. Because everything in your flesh is going to say, there has to be a way around this. Like, maybe I could, like, learn a discipline. Maybe lead a Bible study, go to church. Maybe do a drug, watch a porn. Like, I can do all this stuff, but I don't want to do that. It's going to feel painful. It hurts to go to the throne of grace. I love our theology that you are justified by grace through faith. There's no work involved in your justification. In our sanctification, there is work the work of faith. Everything in your body will not want to go to that throne. Why? Because it requires you to admit you have nothing. In fact, you have to admit that 
your righteousness, whatever things you think are good about you are worthless and they're nothing. They're actually filled with sin. It forces you to run to Jesus' righteousness and sit with him at his throne. How will you know what you're doing that? I want to come back to these verses in verse 11. Let us therefore strive to enter that rest. Isn't that, I mean, isn't that an, an incredible sentence? Let us work to rest. Let us work to rest or strive to enter the rest so that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience. For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit, joints and marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. That is a very famous verse, several verses. It explains the beauty of Scripture And one of the primary means by which we approach the throne of grace is through the word of God. And here's a good way you can tell you're actually reading the Bible. It cuts you to the core. So many times we read our Bibles and we're just boring. We're just, it's la 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 la. I meditate on day and night, blah, 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 blah. You know, and we read a psalm, we cry out, oh my God, you know, and then we go about our day. And here we're being told that when we come to the Word of God, it cuts us and we feel emotion. We see our sin. We see our frailty. We see all the places in our soul, and it's painful, but he applies his grace and his mercy. In verse 13, after he just mentioned what the Word of God will do, it says, and no creature is hidden from its sight. No. No creature is hidden from his Sight. When we come to the Word, we're coming to Jesus. This is our means of grace. All the means of graces we have with communion and worship and devotion and prayer. But I would say one of the primary things we need to recapture is a love for the Word and to come to it not as those who are worthy, but those that need grace. That's the throne of grace. And we come and we confess our sins before Him. At the end of that little bit, it says, and he, when we come to him, all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. One day, someday, you're going to stand before Jesus and you're going to have to give account. Have you all heard that before? Does that make you cringe just a tiny bit? And you know what's going to happen when you do that? Jesus is going to say, I got this. Have you ever been at a restaurant and the bill's racking up and you're like, how am I going to afford this? And someone's like, I've got it. And you're like, thank you. Have you ever had that moment? Jesus has covered all of your sins. That's why you're free. We will go to the day of accounting with bold excitement because it has all been paid for, past, present, and future. And so understand if that's true, If that's true, then when we read that the devil, his job is to make you fear death, that's what slavery is, understand that it's it's a ruse. Like, you can't die. You can't be unlovely. You can't ever be alone. So now we pay attention to all of our emotions that are telling us, I need something. And what, what we're being told is we can come back to the throne of grace to receive everything we need. Does that make sense? What do you want for Christmas? We want peace. 
Zane, I know you want something else, but what you really want is peace. Because in a year, the thing they get you is going to be laying like in the yard, right? It's the peace we want. We crave it. So let's run to the king of Salem. But let's do so with all of our needs. Let's not hide them from him. Let's not treat him like he's too sensitive to hear our brokenness. Because as broken as you think you are, he took all of it. He is more intimately familiar with the body of sin that his people committed and will commit in the future. And it took him to the cross. He's not surprised. And he's not ashamed of you. If anything, the wretchedness that we have is to avoid it. When you read about Paul saying, wretched man that I am, it's a person trying to avoid the cross. So this Christmas, you want peace? Let's boldly go to the throne of grace daily and moment by moment with all of our lives, our whole self, all of our needs, all of our temptations, and all of our brokenness and ask Jesus to heal us. Let's pray.